Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, I invite you this morning to give attention to the words of the one living and true God. Beginning in verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit in was the evil spirit, leapt up on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily mightily and prevailing. Let's pray this morning, shall we, again. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, again we give thanks for the reading of your precious word. And Father, we cry out to you now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your voice would speak to every one of us, that we would hear what you would say to us, that we would go from this place changed, a little more like the Lord Jesus. Father, in particular, I cry out to you this morning for those who do not yet know the Savior. Father, I pray that as they hear this message, that their hearts would be softened, not hardened. That that you would open their hearts, their minds, their ears to hear the message of the gospel, to respond with faith and repentance and know what it is to be truly saved. Lord, we pray too for those of us who are growing weary in our labors and our walk with the Lord. Father, we pray that we would be stirred up and encouraged and strengthened to carry on, to continue in the work that you have given us to do. And Father, we ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The gospel has an impact. Nobody hears the gospel message and remains unaffected. For the Christian who's hearing it, they grow in their love for the Lord. And they they abound in praise and worship for God as they hear the gospel message again. 
For newborn Christians, they increase in their faith and their love and their sanctification as they hear the gospel message proclaimed. For older, mature Christians, they increase in their love for God and their desire for heaven grows as they hear again the gospel message. For Christian workers hearing it, they're spurred on in their labors for the Lord. And for the unbeliever who hears it for the first time, who hears of God's wrath and grace, God's justice and mercy, of hope that can be theirs in Christ from the rescue, for rescue from God's wrath, we pray that God will open their ears and their hearts and minds to hear. But the gospel always has an impact. The gospel serves to divide believer from unbeliever. The gospel serves to spur us on or as we become hardened and disobedient to push away. But the gospel never has zero impact. It always has an impact. And so Paul returned to Ephesus. He had been there shortly before, and they had urged him to come again, and he said he would if the, the Lord would will it, and so he did. And so he enters the synagogue, and he continues speaking and preaching the gospel. And I want you to notice, first of all, the content of his gospel message. The gospel is always the first and best place to start, and it's always a great way to finish up. And so we'll start with the gospel. The content of Paul's ministry, and we can see it in verse number 8, is the kingdom of God. He declared the kingdom of God, and to declare the kingdom of God, to speak about it, is to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Back in chapter 18 and verse 5, Paul was testifying in Corinth that Jesus was the Christ. And in verse 28, we see Paul's uh, fellow laborer who was demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The exact same phrase used. And here, as he begins to speak or continues speaking in the uh, synagogue of the Jews in Ephesus, he is declaring the kingdom of God. And he is, in effect, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ again. Remember, the gospel message is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of the coming anointed one. Remember that Christos is the Greek for Mashiach, which is the Hebrew, and they both mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing was pictured through holy oil being poured on the head. In the New Testament, it was realized through the anointing and the filling of the Holy Spirit in believers. So firstly, the promise of the coming Messiah was the promise of the anointed prophet who would come. One like Moses, promised by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, and that promise was then taken in the New Testament and was applied to Jesus. He's a fulfillment of it by Peter, speaking in Acts chapter 3, verses 18 to 26, and again by Stephen in Acts 7 and verse 37. Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet of God, God's full and perfect revelation of himself. We see the writer to Hebrews describes exactly that in Hebrews chapter 1. Secondly, the promise of the coming Messiah was the promise of the anointed high priest who would come. One like Melchizedek, not like the Aaronic priesthood, but like the Melchizedek one, it's promised by God in Psalm 110. That promise is applied to Jesus by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 17, and also verse 21. Jesus Christ is the anointed 
high priest of God, offering himself as the perfect once for all sacrifice for sin. He paid for your sin and he paid for mine in the offering of himself, in the pouring out of his life and his soul. He gave it of himself that we might be redeemed. And he rose again because death had no hold over him. And he now lives interceding for us with God as high priests do. Thirdly, the promise of the coming Messiah was as the anointed king. One who is David's greater son promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. And that promise was confirmed and repeated in both Psalm 89 and Psalm 132. And Jesus is displayed. I love the way the New Testament begins. This is the genealogy of the king. The king who is coming. And Matthew gives us all those names, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. We were talking earlier in the week with a couple of us about some of the difficult passages of Scripture. You know, like 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And they're awkward. All those names you can't pronounce. But the wonderful truth of it in Matthew is, this is the king. And he has the right to rule and reign because he is both the son of Abraham and the son of David. That promise was applied to Jesus by Peter in Acts 2, verses 29 to 36. So Jesus is the anointed king who is God, truly God and truly man. And he is right now seated on his father's throne, reigning as king of kings and lord of... Not king. By the way, that phrase, king of kings, lord of lords, doesn't mean king among kings. It means king over all kings, and Lord over every other Lord. He has the absolute authority as king. So the gospel of the kingdom is a declaration to earth's inhabitants, to the Jews in their synagogue, and to Gentiles and Greeks in Tyrannus' schoolroom, that Jesus is the king, the anointed king. He was born as king. He lived as king. He died as king. The nail They nailed above his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He rose again as king, but his title is not simply king of the Jews or king of Israel. His title is king of kings, king over all kings. So then what is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Simply put, it's the reign of God the king over his creatures. Just as a bit of an aside here. There's been some confusion in years gone by over two terms, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Lots of people see them as two different kingdoms. But no, they are referring to the same singular kingdom. God has only one kingdom and only one people. Matthew in his gospel will mostly, not always, but mostly write kingdom of heaven. But Mark and Luke and John will write kingdom of God. And you can see that they refer to the same thing because in, in identical gospel accounts, often you have in Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven, but Mark, Luke, and John will refer to the kingdom of God. For example, uh, Jesus began to preach in Matthew 4, verse 17, and he mentions the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, same situation, same event, Mark describes him as saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's referring to the same thing. Matthew uses heaven due to the Jews' reluctance to speak the divine name. And Matthew also knew 
that the Jews understood that kingdom of heaven refers to God's kingdom. And Mark and Luke and John, they're writing more for a Gentile Greek audience. They knew that that term, kingdom of heaven, would clash with their understanding. And so they clearly write kingdom of God. But from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one kingdom and one people of God. But again, that doesn't really answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? It's God's reign as king over all his creation. The two bookends of your Bible, the first account and the very last account, the end of your Bible, give you great pictures of the kingdom of God. In Genesis 2, Eden provides a perfect past tense picture of the kingdom of God. It was then God's unfallen people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the garden enclosure, under God's rule, obeying God's word to freely eat of all the trees of the garden but one. And which one did they eat from? The one they were forbidden. If you ever think, oh, you can just give Adam and Eve a smack for doing that, uh, be careful. Because if we were there, we probably would have done it quicker than they did it. They ate of the one tree. They disobeyed God's word. They rebelled against the king. They broke his word and his law that was given to them. In Revelation 21, the far end of your Bible, we have the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And it's a perfect future tense picture of the kingdom of God. It will be all of God's redeemed people living eternally in God's place, the new Jerusalem, living under God's kingly rule with God himself dwelling or tabernacling literally amongst his people. That's what we have to look forward to. So what is the gospel? We were singing the king of love. And it just made me think again how important that is, that issue. It's easy to get wrapped up in the theology of the gospel and forget to realize, or forget to mention, you don't always forget to realize, it's love. God in love exercised his right, exercised his sovereignty, and sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. It wasn't just for a cold theological set of facts and propositions. He did it because he loved. For God so loved the world. My friends sitting here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know something. You'll never understand and know love until you see and recognize the love of God for you in Christ. So in love, Christ the anointed king has come into this world as promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. In love, Christ the king has conquered sin and death, the world and the devil. Through his suffering and crucifixion and death and resurrection, Christ the king has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And in love for his people, in love for his creation, he has sent the disciples, all of us out into the world, to declare the gospel, to proclaim that the king has come, the king has suffered and died, the king has risen again, and he's now exalted on his throne. And we are to make disciples of this world for Jesus' sake. Christ the king has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It was promised back in Daniel 7 verses 9 to 14. And he was stated by Jesus as fulfilled in Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. Listen. 
Every square millimeter of this earth belongs to Christ the King. There is not one single place where he doesn't put his finger and say, Mine. It's mine. It all belongs to me. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created by him and for him. He owns this world. And we are living here, every breath we draw, every time our heart pulses and beats, every brainwave that functions, it's all because of God's sustaining grace to us all. We are his creatures. And Christ the King, in love for us, now commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Oh, beloved, what damage we do to the gospel message if we present it as God indifferently offering the gospel, you can take it or leave it. He doesn't care. I beg to differ on the basis of the word of God. He cares. He commands you to believe. And in love, he is working. You're not here this morning because you just got brought here by your parents or your wife, or your husband, or you came in the back door looking to find out what's going on here. You're here because God the Holy Spirit is at work at you to bring you here to hear the message of God's love and God's grace. Christ the King is returning to reward those who have submitted to his reign. I heard a story, uh, I might have told it before. I'm known for repeating stories, so forgive me if you've heard me tell this before, but it just so best catches it. Uh, we were in evangelism class at uh, MST, and our principal, Tim Myers, who was raised as a missionary, I think, in uh, Indonesia or one of those type places, and he said, you know, back in the olden days in Greek history, two kings would go to war with each other, and each king was a king over a certain amount of territory and land, and they would go out, and they'd fight in the war, and they'd bring 10,000 soldiers one way and 10,000 soldiers the other, and whoever had the most soldiers alive at the end of the big crash where they came together, that was the victorious king. And that king would then take, and he would send runners out, and they would go to the villages and towns and cities of the opposing defeated king. And they would come, and they would bang on the city gates, hear ye, hear ye, or something like that in Greek. So-and-so king has just defeated your king, and this king is now in control of all these territories, this city, and every one of you now belong to the new king. You must either declare allegiance to the new king or stand in rebellion against him. But I assure you, the new king is coming, and those who have stood in obedience to him and allegiance to him will be rewarded, but those who have remained his enemies will be brought out and destroyed. Do you know what that runner was called? I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I know I am. A euangelion, or an evangelion. You say, what's that sound like? Like an evangelist. His job was to go and pronounce... The king has conquered. You belong to him. You must either declare allegiance to him and trust him, or you must stay in rebellion against him. And when he arrives, you will be rewarded or punished, depending on how you responded to the news. So interesting that they were called gospelers. So what do we do? With this, he is declaring, he's proclaiming the kingdom. He's speaking of the kingdom of God to them. 
And my call this morning to everybody sitting here is to believe the gospel and repent of sin because the king is returning with a great army to reward and to punish. Believe the gospel. So what's the gospel? The most well-known verse in the Bible, for God. The gospel is all focused on God. The gospel is not focused on you and I. The center of the gospel is God himself. For God so loved... It isn't so much as like a massive love as in he loved in this way. The Bible says he gave his only begotten son. Surrendered into the hands of men and women. Delivered by the determined foreknowledge and counsel of God into the hands of wicked men who nailed him to a cross. Spat on him and cursed him and mocked him as he hung between heaven and earth. He did so for a reason. He did so that he might bear our sins in our place. To take God's anger at you for your sin and placed it on him. That in believing you might have life. For the rest of the verse is, whosoever believes would not perish. Two things we know are true there. Those who don't believe are going to perish. And those who do believe will not perish, but have eternal life. And so again, I repeat the message. Jesus preached at his first recorded words in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, beloved here, whether you know Christ or not, repent and believe the gospel. For the king is coming and coming soon. Notice, secondly, the ministry of the gospel. We see it in the first part of verse 8. He was speaking, reasoning, and persuading. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is all through the New Testament. It's the first message Jesus preached. I just referred to it. Mark 1, 14 and 15. It's Jesus' last words spoken in reference to the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. He spoke to his disciples before his departure concerning the kingdom of God. Philip preached the gospel of the kingdom in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 19, here, Paul presents the gospel of the kingdom. And the last historical words written about Paul at the very end, the last verse of Acts chapter 28, verse 31, it says, He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What an epitaph, hey? What are they going to write about you when they put you in the ground? Uh, I, this is a little comical, but I heard a, a preacher said he used to go around in the United States in these old, old cemeteries down in the southeast United States. He used to read tombstones for a hobby. Okay, whatever. And he read, one and he said, here lies sister so-and-so. She finally stopped talking, you know. And here lies so-and-so, you know. And they just had all these comical things written over their lives. But Acts 28.31, if you like, is Paul's epitaph written over his life. He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he was in chains, in prison, he carried on. He ministered the gospel of the kingdom. Notice, by the way, the repetition. You probably picked it up in chapter 17 and 18 and 19. Uh, Luke keeps writing that he was boldly speaking. He was reasoning and persuading. He was boldly speaking the gospel like, the, like Apollos, his fellow laborer. 
These two men fearlessly proclaim the kingdom reign of Christ who is God. Fearlessness comes from the conviction that nothing this world can do to us can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's what allowed countless millions of believers behind the Iron Curtain for all those years. Countless millions of believers in Korea and China and the Middle East and so many other places in the world to carry on undaunted, unceasing in their gospel presentation because they knew. They knew the worst they could do was take their physical life from them, which would be a doorway into glory face to face with Jesus in a moment. He reasoned for the gospel. He reasoned. He used Old Testament biblical texts and terminology to present true biblical propositions in order to make clear, reasoned arguments that Jesus is the Christ. He's Savior, he's Lord, and he's King. And these Jews and the Gentiles who were hearing his message had to do something about it. But it wasn't cold and dry. I've been uh, studying a little bit in apologetics recently. And one of the arguments against apologetics, and it's kind of an emotional one, is like, it's just cold and dry. It's facts and figures. It's, it's all kinds of reasoning without emotion. But look what it says. He was persuading. And I'm convinced that means that Paul was calling. He was urging. He was pleading with men and women to repent and believe the gospel. Pleading with them to recognize that refusal to believe and repent will result in the judgment of the soon returning king. I remember the story way back when I was a kid. We used to have a, the Brethren, Open Brethren Easter Conference at uh, Granville Chapel. 600 folks all singing the old hymns in parts. It was wonderful. It was a great time. I remember uh, Dr. Paul Irwin, you remember that name, uh, standing up there and talking about Ivan Solzhenitsyn, I think it was. And he was in a, a prison camp in Russia, in the, in the Gulag, I think it's called. And he, was, he had a, a contorted bowel, and he was going to die if they didn't operate. And the, the prison surgeon was known to have taken more lives than the guards in his careless operating. And so as he lay on his bunk all night, writhing in agony, awaiting for the operation in the morning, a young Christian knelt by his bedside and pleaded with him to trust the Lord. And he knew full well that across the room, in the doorway, two soldiers were watching him. They could hear his words across the room as he begged, pleaded, trust the Lord. It isn't just reasoning. It isn't just preaching. It's pleading. It's calling for decision. It's calling for a, a choice to be made. I know you're thinking last week's sermon, you said decision is a bad thing. Yeah, but we must respond in faith. And as he pleaded and pleaded and pleaded with him, as they carried him out of the room, Ivan heard the screams as the guards beat him to death for his testimony for Christ. And he trusted the Lord for his salvation. Hey, listen, Paul wasn't just coldly presenting facts and moving on his way. He pleaded with them. So, brother and sister, we take from this an application. Be faithful in presenting the gospel through whatever means God has provided you. Preaching within the church and preaching without the church. Speaking boldly in whatever context God has placed you. Learn, understand the truths of the Bible to make clear, reasoned arguments. Remember, it's not necessarily brilliant learning, 
but the simple gospel logic that even a child can understand. It's not necessarily eloquence, but faithfulness that God uses and blesses. It's not necessarily great oratory, apologetic, debating ability, but availability that God greatly uses and blesses. Interesting, by the way, the comparison between Apollos and Paul. Paulus was eloquent, a skilled orator, and God greatly used him. And Paul was weak and fearful and trembling. His words and rhetoric, as he says, were unimpressive. He wasn't a good public speaker, and yet God greatly used both of them to make the gospel known. Why? Because they displayed humility. Both of them did. Brother and sister, be faithful to use whatever means God has given you. If all you know of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loved you and died on a cross to pay for your sin, and that you believe in him and are repenting from sin, If that's all you understand, go and share it. You'd be amazed how a simple presentation like that can reach through. It's it's not your intelligence and brilliance, your oratory ability. It's faithfulness and availability. Notice thirdly, there was resistance to the gospel in verse 9. It says, when, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The Jews initially wanted Paul to return to hear more, but not anymore, not now. They had heard Paul present the gospel of the kingdom, but their refusal to submit and believe the gospel is disobedience to God's command. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. In the New King James Version of Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, it says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a time in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Listen. Unbelief is not an acceptable option before God. Refusal to submit and believe will again, sorry, will begin to produce in the listener a hardened heart against the message. And a hardened heart will begin to speak evil of the way. You go back to the Old Testament and you see the story of Pharaoh. You see a terrible demonstration of what a hardened heart can bring. And result in. In Exodus 4, verse 21, God promised Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 8, verse 15, and verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then in Exodus 9, verse 12, God hardened Pharaoh's heart against God's word. And in Exodus 14, verse 17, in Pharaoh's destruction with his army in the Red Sea, God said, I will get my glory. Stories like that or to strike within us, or to fuel up within us evangelism fire, to go and make the gospel known, to go and preach the gospel, to have a passion for the souls of men, lest they fall under God's judgment, to warn the unbeliever of hardening their hearts against God and the gospel. 
My friends sitting here, if you have refused to believe in times gone by, I beg you to listen, to stop, to hear what God is saying in the gospel message. Beware of a refusal to believe. Beware of the danger of hardening your heart. Beware of God's grace being withdrawn. You say, hold on, hold on a second now. God's grace lasts forever, right? No, actually it doesn't. There is a time when God withdraws his grace. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 32 makes it very clear that there comes a time when God gives disobedient, unrepentant, hardened hearts over to their own sin. So I am begging you this morning, if you forget everything else I said, everything but this, hear this. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ as your Savior. Turn to him and find forgiveness. If you feel in your heart that drawing, that yearning to know God, respond. Because every time we push back and harden ourselves against it, there comes a time when God says, okay, and gives them over. That's not an easy message to preach. But I'm convinced on the authority of Scripture, it must be said. Notice, fourthly, the spread of the gospel in verse 10. Paul withdrew from the synagogue, and most scholars will say he was asked to leave. Whether he was asked or not, he left. He moved on. Paul used the school lecture room of uh, Tyrannus, whose name literally means the tyrant. And Paul continued for two years, making the gospel known. The closed door at the synagogue was not the end of Paul's mission in Ephesus. The result of that move was that all who lived in Asia heard the gospel. And I'm convinced that Gentile Greeks like Tychicus and Aristarchus and Epaphras and Archippus and others heard the gospel through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and they were involved to varying degrees in spreading the gospel and planting churches. And the Asian churches mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3 are likely planted through Paul and his fellow workers. Churches like Ephesus, obviously, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and the rest. Those two years were some of Paul's most fruitful period of ministry in all his ministry. It's also, by the way, likely a time he was dealing with all the issues in Corinth and brokenhearted as he was over all that was going on there. But God was greatly blessing his ministry in Ephesus and beyond as all in Asia heard the gospel. So losing one avenue, one area for ministry is not the end of the story. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged. The loss of one ministry can result in another greater ministry. God needed to move Paul from synagogue to schoolroom to increase his ministry. God knew what he was doing. God always knows what he's doing. One closed door for ministry may be the detour God is taking you on for a ministry that is more significant, whether it's more people or way fewer. God knows what he's doing. Be encouraged in whatever ministry God has placed you in, great or small. God often uses us in spite of ourselves. I heard a story a long time ago about a renowned, would have been probably third or fourth century theologian, wrestled for months over the gospel. His faithful praying mother 
praying and pleading with the, God, with the Lord that he would believe. And one day in, in turmoil, trying to figure it all out, not knowing what to do, he was walking through a garden and he heard a voice of an unknown child who sang in a childish song, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine walked over to where he knew there was a gospel and our, a book of Galatians actually laying on a table and he picked it up and read. And the Spirit of God opened his heart and his mind, and he believed, and he was saved. And he went on to write, I think, arguably one of the greatest collections of Christian literature that the church and world has ever known. You don't know if wherever God has placed you, you might think it's so insignificant, but you have no idea what God might be doing through that place he's put you. I think I told the story, I probably, I don't know if I have or not, uh, there was a cook in the basement of a minister's house in Stamburn, England, back in the 18, 1850s. And she had this little chubby fellow who was the grandson of the minister. He used to come down there, and she would always have a little cookie or some bread or something for him already. And she put on the table, and he would sit down there, and he would eat this cookie and the bread, and she would teach him the truths of the gospel. And that unknown, unremembered cook was teaching Charles Haddon Spurgeon as a boy theology, and she had no idea who he would go on to become. Brother and sister in Christ, Paul was moved out of the synagogue. That was his place he loved to be. Paul was moved into the schoolroom of a man named Tyrannus the tyrant. And he faithfully preached and teached and reasoned and spoke the scriptures for those two years. And God used the ministry he put him in, which was something he maybe hadn't have planned, to spread and plant churches all over Asia. God will use us if we're faithful. God will use us if we're committed and available to be used wherever he puts you. Notice, fifthly, the confirmation of the gospel in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul's hands. The miracles that God did were the credentials Paul carried. They were God's divine signature on his work. They gave authentication to his words. Those miracles were also a foreshadow, a promissory note, if you like, of what is yet to come when Christ returns in power and great glory. So in the consummated kingdom of God, there will be no more diseases. Christ's sufferings have healed every disease. By his stripes, we are healed. And we don't see the full reality of that in our day and age, but it's coming. It's to come. But those miracles were a foretaste of what was to come. In the kingdom of God, the devil is already defeated. The Bible tells us he's been cast down from heaven to earth in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And he's still alive and active and influencing and deceiving people and nations of the world. New Testament bears it out. Acts 5, verse 3, Satan fills hearts. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Satan tempts people. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Satan exercises schemes. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, Satan hinders ministers of the gospel. He prowls around like a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5. He's defeated, but he's not inactive. He's still influencing the world and the nations. Open your newspaper, turn on the TV news. You can see it plain as day. So how do we respond? 
James 4, verse 7, we submit to God and we resist the devil and he flees from us. Ephesians 6, verse 11, we put on God's armor to stand firm against the devil's schemes. He's still exercising them. But we know for a certainty in Revelation 20, verse 6, he will one day be cast from the earth into the pit and the abyss and where he will be unable to deceive or influence the nations anymore. This is all background. The point I want to make is this. God performed extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul was the vessel. He was the channel. He was the instrument or the tool that God was using. But it was just weak, mere, puny, ordinary Paul that God was using. And I love the fact that God uses weak, mere, puny, ordinary people. Because if he didn't, who else would he use? That's all he's got. And God was using Paul, God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul to display to those in Ephesus who were steeped in the magical arts that the one true God of the Bible is infinitely more powerful than every evil spirit. God has conquered Satan and his demons, represented by the evil spirits here. Even Paul's, pardon me, his sweaty headband, the, the handkerchief thing, it's almost certainly a piece of cloth he tied around his head as he was working his tent maker shop and the sweat would come down and the, the band would kind of keep the sweat from going into his eyes. That's what it means. And that was taken and laid on people and sicknesses left and demons fled away. But listen, God was performing those miracles through Paul to confirm his ministry, to confirm the words of the gospel that he was preaching. So the people in Ephesus would realize that what he was talking about, what he was representing, was infinitely more powerful than anything they worshipped or believed in. But God no longer needs to use miracles to confirm his word through his ministers, especially in places where the Bible has already been translated God has given us his completed, holy, inspired word to measure and to know the authenticity of the message being preached. Miracles are no longer required for that. Yet God may, God may in places where translations are yet to be completed, provide miraculous evidence of the gospel witness for missionaries. But it's not the general circumstance. But here's the point I want to make. It's the two words through Paul or in the hands of Paul. Paul was an ordinary man. Weak, fearful, trembling, unimpressive in speech. And God uses ordinary ministers, ordinary people to bring the blessing of his word and message to others. Remember, we're merely channels or vessels, tools or instruments through whom God works to bless those around us. We are not the source of the blessing God is. God confirmed and authenticated his spoken, preached word through miracles then. And God confirms and authenticates his spoken, preached word through the text now. God has already defeated the devil and his demons. He has healed every disease. And we will in eternity never know sorrow or pain or hardship of disease and death. The gospel had a tremendous impact in there. And the point that just I want to get across is he used ordinary, mere people. It was his miraculous power. It was his saving grace. We preach the message, and God saves a sinner. 
We faithfully pray. We faithfully reason and speak boldly and persuade. And God saves the sinner. It's not who we are. It's who he is. We are but servants of the king. Amen? Amen. Amen. So first of all, just to recap it, the content of the gospel is, of the kingdom is Christ. He is the anointed king who came, who lived, who died and rose again to save his people from wrath, from sin, from hell, from the world, from death, from flesh. So this morning, again, I can't emphasize it enough. Repent of your sin and believe the message, the good news, that Christ is king. Secondly, the ministry of the gospel is through faithfully, boldly speaking, reasoning, and persuading by which God brings people to himself. So, brother and sister, in whatever area God has placed you, be faithful with what God has given you to do to make that message known. Remember, it's not great skill. It's not faithfulness. Sorry, it's not great skill so much as faithfulness and prayerfulness that God uses. Third, there's a resistance to the gospel, which is a disobedient refusal to believe. And so, beloved, sitting here this morning, beware, lest your refusal to believe and repent becomes a hardened heart. Brother and sister in Christ, be unceasing. Unceasing in your prayers for loved ones who have not yet believed. Cry out to God on their behalf. God hears our prayers. And fourthly, there's a spread of the gospel. It's through God's faithfulness raising up other faithful men and women. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is not finished with you and with us yet. Don't despair looking around the world and all that's going on in the news and the media and all that other stuff. Christ is king. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. He hasn't resigned. He's not going to step down. It's not finished. He owns it all. And God will deal with the ungodly when he comes. Between now and then, we cry out to God for their salvation and we plead with them to believe because God is coming. And he won't come as the gentle, sorry, the gentle, meek, and mild Savior as he came the first time. He'll come as a conquering king. The world thinks Jesus is what they put on the Christmas cards, a little baby in a manger. Open a book of Revelation, read Revelation chapter 1, you see the pictures. Read Revelation, I think it's 19. See the pictures of Christ, the conquering king? That's how he's coming back. Be unceasing in your prayers, beloved, for loved ones who have not yet believed. The spread of the gospel is through God's faithfulness, raising up other men and women to carry on. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God uses faithfulness more than eloquence. And praise God that he does. The gospel has an impact, but the gospel has to be made known. The gospel has an impact to sharpen our love for Christ, deepen our faith in Christ, and increase our joy in Christ. The gospel has an impact in the unbeliever. It, through the power of the Holy Spirit, their eyes are open to hear the message. And they're drawn to believe so that they can believe. They're made alive so they can believe. The gospel has an impact. 
The gospel has an impact separating believer from unbeliever. Brother and sister, make it known. That's our commission, is it not? That's what God left us here to do. Paul was busy in Ephesus doing what God left him to do. The last words written about him was he was still doing what God left him here to do. So brother and sister in Christ, let's get busy. And to those sitting here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I'm pleading with you with all my heart. Believe the message. Repent of sin. For Jesus is coming again. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing the benediction song, I believe. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks and we praise you, O God, our God, that you have given all authority to him, to the one who suffered and bled and died, but the one who rose again in great triumph. Father, we give thanks and we praise you, O God, that the Lord Jesus is coming again as a conquering king. Father, we cry out to you for those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Father, we pray the power of the Holy Spirit would work in their lives, in their hearts, in their minds. Father, I cry out to you that you would open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus as Savior and as King. Father, I pray too, words that may have been spoken amiss, Lord, strike them from our memories. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We give thanks, O God, for this time of worship together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.